Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Bible in front of you, open to the text in uh, Acts 17, uh, the Sermon on Mars Hill. This morning I want to talk just a little bit about repentance. Now don't panic. I, I know what's happening out there. Repentance, oh, I know what this is going to be. It's that, you know, you're all going to hell. You're going to fry like a sausage for all eternity, and God's out to get you. He's really mad at you. You better repent or you perish. Now, it's okay. Put away your spiritual lightsabers, you know. You, you don't have to fend me off. <laughs> because in point of fact, repentance is one of the most healthy things you can do. I would say it's the most healthy thing you can do, but there's also that sanctification, glorification thing, resurrection, adoption. Uh, they're, they're pretty cool too. But repentance is one of the most healthy things you can do in life. Now, we don't gravitate towards that. We, we really don't think that that's the case. We think of repentance as being a, a sign that your life has gone really, really bad, and now you're groveling in the dirt, and you're just begging God to forgive you and all that. And, you know, if, if that's how you come to God, okay, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. When we're talking about repentance, we're talking about having a mindset, a focus of the mind that turns away from life as we're living it in rebellion against God, in violation of his laws, uh, contrary to him, away from God, changing that mindset so we turn around and our lives are now focused on who God is and our being and our behavior is all now being drawn into who God is. Is. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about repentance. So um, if, if the, the, the thing that comes up in your mind, and I understand it about repentance, is that it's just this once-in-a-lifetime thing where you get convicted of sin and you're just devastated and the tears are coming down and you're, you're just wrought emotionally and spiritually and finally you cry out to God, that's fine. But repentance is a part of the everyday life of the believer in Jesus Christ. And it's one of the most healthy things you can do with your life. Um, let me see if I can illustrate how most of us respond to this, this idea of repentance. I think what, what, well, it's sort of like my playing golf. Okay, I don't play golf anymore. Um, there are several reasons why I don't play golf. Uh, mostly it has to do with the fact that I respect the game too much to inflict myself on, on the game. And uh, we, we uh, uh, you know, I've, I've known people in the, uh, back in the olden days, uh, pastors used to get free golf. You, you just show up and you can play golf uh, for free. I mean, it, it was a pretty neat deal. And uh, uh, most of you know Dewey Richardson. Well, Papa Dewey was, was just flabbergasted that I didn't play free golf. And I couldn't get him to understand that, you know, I, you know, Dewey, I shouldn't play golf. Not the way I play. I shouldn't get out on the links. And he, and he never believed me and told me he saw me hit a golf ball once. I, I still remember this. He took me out behind the old church, 
he put a ball on the ground. He had me, I think it was a five iron or something. He said, go ahead, hit the ball, Pastor. So hit it into the woods. So I hit the ball. It went straight. It went straight and it went high. And Dewey said, is that all you can do? <laughs> you know, he never knew it, but I was devastated. But anyway, I, I, I quit playing golf. I used to play golf. There, there was one summer that, that uh, I took up the game of golf. Um, I had my five clubs, that's all I needed. And, uh, and I carried them around in my little canvas uh, vacuum cleaner bag. And, uh, <laughs> as I, and, and I took up playing golf, but it, it was a bonding experience. Debbie and I were learning golf together. We were playing together. She had played before. And I was playing with my future father-in-law. So this was like a real time of togetherness. We were growing close to each other as we looked for our balls in the woods. So, but I, I picked up golf that, that summer. And after the summer was over, I went back to uh, college. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just keep playing golf. Now, at that time, Duke University had a, had a policy that on the university golf course, students could play for a dollar after 5 o'clock. This was a pretty good deal. Because first, nobody else is playing after 5 o'clock because you don't have time to get in 18 holes. You only have time for about nine holes before the sun went down. And that was okay with me because after nine holes, I had used up my 100 strokes anyway. And so it was, you know, it, it was working out really well. So uh, I would get out on the links. Nobody else was there. And uh, I, I would uh, just play the round. And that's when I discovered the evil heart of people who design golf courses. What they had done was they had sent out spies to watch me play. And they had recorded where my ball would land. And they put a sand trap or a water hazard right there, you know. <laughs> actually, these guys are actually very, very smart because what they know is they know that, you know, if you tee off with, a, with an iron uh, out of the tee box, that if, if you scoop it and get under it, that ball's going to go straight up and it's going to straight down. And they know exactly where it's going to land. And they always put a gully of water there. Am I right? And on, on almost all par threes have a, have a little gully of water there. So anyway, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm playing along. And look, I would play golf today except one time I came to one of the last holes and it was a par four. Now, for those of you you who don't understand the meaning of par, par means on average it should take four strokes to finish the hole. Now this is how silly golf is. Par is average. But if you can shoot par, you can be a professional. It's the only game where average is like really professional and they're looking down on the rest of us saying, you know, why are you even bothering? You know, that, that kind of thing. So it's a par four and it's a straight, straight hole, just, you know, just no dog legs or anything, but Duke University Golf Course has two kinds of uh, playing surfaces. It has fairway and it has wilderness, okay? You have the fairway and then you have a stand of trees and it's wilderness back in there. And so I'm in the tee box by myself and uh, um, I, I tee up the ball and I hit the ball, whack, and it goes, it goes a mile, 50 yards out and the rest of it to the right. I mean, it's just, it's a thing of beauty. I feel sorry for people who don't have a slice because they've never experienced the wonder of, of the ball going <laughs> I, I pity those poor guys who, you know, the ball goes straight. How boring is that? <laughs> and I really feel sorry for the guys who can hook the ball, but that's another story. So anyway, I'm, I'm in there and I hit the ball and it just goes up and it hits a tree. Okay, this is not exactly a new experience for me. So I tee up another ball and I hit the ball and I hit the same tree. 
I teed up a third ball, I hit the same tree. Folks, I would be there today still, except the fourth time I hit the same tree, the ball bounced back into the fairway. I kid you not, at that point, I said to myself, it was like a religious experience, life is too short to learn this game. <laughs> and I have never played since. I don't even know if I finished the hole. Never played since. Now, here's what I do with golf. First, I can't blame golf, and I blame the inventors of the game. <laughs> I blame the Scots. The Scots invented golf in order to punish the English. I know that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but I blame them for coming up with this silly game. And then I blame the designer. I blame the people who designed the course because they intentionally put sand traps and water hazards right where my ball would be sucked right into them like a vortex. You notice they never have dog legs to the right that are only 50 yards out and then go, you know, right turn? I blame the designer of the courses. That's why I can't play. You know, my clubs weren't that great either. I, I, you know, I blame the manufacturer of my clubs because when they made that driver, they left the slices in there. You know, all they had to do was just drill in and take them out and reweight the club, and it would have been fine. So it, it really is their fault. In other words, I blamed everybody but me. Which, by the way, happens to be true. It's not my fault. <laughs> but I think a lot of us approach life like that. You know, we, we, we get into a relationship. You might be in a marriage and things aren't going quite right. And what do you do? First thing you do, you, design, you blame the designer. Whoever thought of this thing until death us do part idea? I mean, that's ludicrous. Don't they know what the natural inclinations are? I mean, that, that's absolutely ridiculous. And then we, we, we blame those who, who would tell us what marriage should be. We blame the Bible. You know, you're, you're, you're getting me way off base. We blame the other person. It must be the, their fault. In other words, all along the way, we say, we look at that. We say, you know, this marriage has problems. I, I acknowledge that. But it's her fault. It's his fault. It's somebody else's fault. But it surely is not my fault. And we do that with ourselves. You know, we get, in, get into situations in life and things just aren't going the way they should go, and we start blaming everybody. You know, it's the boss's fault, it's the job's fault, it's the culture's fault, it's the society's fault, it's somebody's fault, but it sure isn't my fault. And sadly, we do that with God. We decide it must be all his fault. Have you ever done that? Why does God make this happen? Why did this happen? Why does God do this? And, you know, essentially what we're doing, we're saying this is all God's fault. And sadly, this inability to acknowledge our role in the brokenness of our lives results in all kinds of, of lunatic behavior. In our culture, in our nation, one of the big problems we have right now is nobody is willing to repent about anything. Whatever's going on, it's the other guy's fault. If we're having a discussion about the divisions in our country, I can tell you this much, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I'm not going to say it's not a case where somebody else doesn't share some of the fault, but once in a while, it's our fault. Once in a while, we're contributing to the brokenness and the dysfunctionality of the lives around us. And that's why I'm telling you that the ability to repent 
is one of the healthiest things you can do. Now, let's look at the Scripture. Here we are in, um, in Acts chapter 17. We'll pick it up. And Paul's talking to these folks, and the one thing you know is none of these folks are sitting around saying, you know, my life is really broken, and it's my fault. I wish I knew a way out of it. And, you know, he's got to lay out the context in which uh, their lives are, are, are taking place. He says this, uh, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. You're so religious that when I walk around your city, I see altars to every imaginable God. And look, in the ancient world, you had gods for everything. You know, if your muffler was broken, you, you, you know, you had the God mining key and you would just, you know, offer up uh, <laughs> things. Up. I mean, for everything, there was a God. And Paul said, and as I was walking through your town, I found an altar, and on it it said, to the unknown God. You know, we, we don't know what God is, is after me now, but we got to placate him, so here, here's, the, here's the unknown God. And archaeologists have actually found altars in Athens, the old archaeology Athens, uh, they, they, they've actually found all altars that have these inscriptions on them, to the unknown God. And Paul says, I perceive you're very religious because not only are you worshiping a bunch of gods, you're covering all your bases in case you left one out. That's how religious you are. You see, there's something about human beings that need God. We need God. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to praise him. The reason God put this whole universe together thing and got it rolling and, and the galaxies and, and, the, and the stars and the systems and the planets and all that was so that somewhere at this time appointed by God, there would be some, some human beings who would pause and think, you know, there's something more here than just us. This has more meaning than just what I'm about. There must be something bigger than we are and so, as Paul says later on, in just sort of feeling our way to God, just grasping at it, just, just in, in halting steps, trying to figure out what's going on, we're reaching out to God because that is a vestigial uh, uh, presence within us before our first parents sinned, before we started rejecting the true and living God. And so, we are so religious, we have to have something that will be our God. Now, sometimes it's a cause and there are some really good causes. There's some really good uh, things to invest your life in. Social justice is a really good thing to invest your life in. Uh, you know, the welfare of others, looking out for others. Uh, look, folks, I, I throw save the whales into there. These are magnificent creatures, and there's no reason why we need to be killing whales anymore. I mean, uh, I broke my whale oil lamp last week, so I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't need whale oil anymore. Um, I was going to mention something about corsets but, um, and, and whale teeth. You know they were made out of baleen whale teeth? You don't remember? Buggy whips were made out of whale teeth too, by the way. I just lost my place. <laughs> it's a great cause, but it's not God. It's something worthwhile, but it's not God. It is something that will give your life a kind of definition and we search for definition, we search for a meaning, we search for something to invest our lives in that is worthy of a human life investment. We search for those kinds of things, and we find all kinds of causes and reasons, and they're good and they're noble, but they are not God. We do not know God the way we need to. 
And so Paul says, I perceive, first of all, that you're very religious. You, you were made for God. You need God. And here's the other thing that I understand. Paul says, oh, I've got to skip down a little bit. Um, verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Wow. That's pretty big. God who made, every, it, it made the world and everything in it, made the universe. It's all his, all his design. It's amazing stuff said, this God who made the entire universe, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by man, nor do you feed him when you bring him an offering, nor do you in any way supply something that he doesn't have. In other words, you cannot create the God that will fill up the need that you have for him. You just cannot do it. We try. We try all kinds of things. But we cannot create something that will take God's place that, is, that will in any way be worthy of him. Let me illustrate it this way. Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal was uh, a French philosopher, scientist, and, um, um, and, and um, uh, uh, mathematician. And um, Pascal lived about 350 years ago or so. Look it up on your, on your Siri and, and tell me I'm wrong after the service. But in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal uh, was thinking about these kinds of things. And uh, he wrote a, a book of all things called Pensées, which means what I'm thinking about. And, uh, um, but it's in French, so it's a lot more sophisticated. But uh, uh, so uh, Pascal writes this book, Pensées. And one of the things he says in it is this. Human beings are so aware of how empty their lives are without God, without the true and living God. They'll do anything to address that, that, that sensitivity. And what Pascal called it, he said, and so human beings look for diversion. They look for something to do that will take their mind off the fact that they are estranged from God and their lives are drifting along and are meaningless. You know, and that, think about how much of our lives are taken up with just looking for diversion. We're just trying to find things to do that will take our minds off of the fact that our lives aren't, aren't what they ought to be. You know, we, got, we have entertainment medium. You know, we'll do all kinds of nutty things. You ever see somebody with this diversion? Got him! <laughs> you know, I was in the neighborhood the other day, and, and Debbie and I are driving in in the car. I, I kid you not, we, we, we see this kid, and he, he's got his, his um, thing in his hand, his device, and he's backing into the road just like this. I almost killed him. <laughs> but, you know, I, I paused, and he never did see me. He just went right across the road. You know, he's looking for this thing. Next day, same thing, same kid, looking for the same Pokemon. He can't find him, you know, felt sorry for him. But we're, we're doing all this kind of stuff to try and divert our attention so we don't think about the fact that our lives are empty. And that's why we go for the causes. That's why we go for, uh, you know, entertainment. That's why we, we, we uh, you know, get hobbies and recreations. All of this is a part of the fact that we need God, we're designed for God, we've left God out, and therefore we're looking for something to take its place. Paul says, look, you can't build a temple that'll do that. You cannot build a thing of any kind that will take God's place adequately. It just doesn't make sense. 
that a finite human being could create anything that would be worthy of calling God, and yet we all need God in our lives. And so Paul says, you need God, you're very religious, that's, that's, that's why you're religious, that's why you're looking for something bigger in your life than you are. You need God, you can't replace him, you can't build a temple to replace him. And then he says uh, this, okay, and from one man, every nation of mankind he made to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries for the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So while we have rejected God, we need God, but we've rejected God, we try to replace him with some other thing other than God, Paul says, but you know, in reality, God hasn't deserted you. He has left a testimony, a witness to himself all around you. Everywhere you look, you see the testimony of God. Here's the difference. You know, we get up in the morning and we look at the sunrise. I do, sometimes, if I have to. But anyway, we get up in the morning and we look at the sunrise, and one person will say, well, you realize the sunrise is, is in point of fact, a myth. The sun is not rising at all, and, and, and what's really happening is that the earth is rotating on its axis. It's slowing down every year, by the way. And couldn't you tell? And, uh, and, and as it rotates around, it looks like the earth is, it, 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 the sun is coming up, but in point of fact, the earth is rotating downward. And so the astrophysics of it is that, you know, and we'll explain all this. You know, and that's a pretty good explanation. Somebody else comes along and says, well, you know, actually what there is is there's two angels up there and they're playing ping pong and the ball, you know, they're just hitting the ball back there. Perfectly fine. But here's what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. We say, really? The earth is rotating and the sun comes up and it, and it just looks like it comes up, but in point of fact, there are laws of physics and, and astronomy that are holding that thing together and, and it's just the exact right distance from the earth to sustain uh, carbon-based life forms and, and you know, and you really? Wow. God's a pretty smart fellow. God is pretty glorious to think that up. And one person will say, yeah, we can explain all that. Fine, you can explain it. You can't explain why. And you can't explain the fact that it has all worked together to bring us into existence to be self-reflective creatures that are able to bring honor and glory and praise and worship to God. See, all around us is the handiwork of God. All around us is the brush strokes of his artistry. Everywhere we look, we see the evidence that God has been at work in the world around us. And so Paul says, look, he, he's not left anybody in any place destitute of a witness. He's not far off from anybody. But rather, he has given testimony of himself so that if by chance some people might just feel and claw their way to try to get to him. In every culture, you will find people who are looking for the true and living God. For some reason, they understand that their culture, the religion of their society, the, the mythology-bound basis of the, of the worldview around them, that all of that is inadequate, and they are searching for a true and for a living God who loves them and cares for them and provides for them and will bring them unto himself for all eternity. They don't know their looking for the God of Israel, but they are feeling their way if by chance they might find him because God has left evidence and testimony of himself in every corner of the universe. 
So that's where we are. We're, we're, we're at this point now. We need God. We were created for him. We can't create a God to take his place. Uh, God has given us evidence of himself. Now, here's the deal. We have rejected that, that evidence. Uh, Paul puts it this way to these folks. He says, being then God's offspring, and we didn't talk about that, but we could have. But being God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone uh, created by the imagination of man. We shouldn't think that the meaning of life is found within ourselves. The times of ignorance God overlooked. And now he commands all people everywhere. By the way, that includes you. All people everywhere. He doesn't leave anybody out of his love. All people everywhere. There's no society, no nation, no place, no language, no tongue, no kindred, no tribe that is apart from God's saving grace and his desire to bring men and women boys and girls, unto himself. God now has overlooked the times of the past, and he commands all people everywhere to, what does it say? To repent. To repent. And what that word means is he's commanding people everywhere to stop relying upon themselves and their own wisdom and understanding, to stop relying upon the, the, the limitations and the frailty and, the, and the, the confusion of the human race, to stop relying upon ourselves and to understand that God has created us for his glory and turn away from self and turn to God. Now, that's what repentance is. And the way it works, first of all, is when you come to the cross when you understand that my life is alienated from God, I have sinned against God, there must be some way in which my sins can be forgiven. There is, because God has already showed and demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ was sent and Christ died for us while we were sinners. And the Holy Spirit brings us to the cross, opens our eyes to see the majesty of the grace of God in Christ, that he died for us, his blood poured out for us. And that our sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when we come to the cross, repentance means turning away from that sin and self and turning to Christ and asking him to be Lord and Savior of our lives. And that's the repentance that brings us new birth, new life, brings us the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection. That's where repentance begins. Without that moment of repentance, the rest of what we're going to talk about won't make any sense. Because the beginning of repentance is turning to Jesus Christ. Now, being a believer in Jesus Christ all along the way, you're going to discover something. You're going to stumble. Most of you. You're going to fall. All of you. You're going to mess up. You're going to disappoint not just yourself, you know you're going to disappoint God's will for your life. But the amazing thing is this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because we have an advocate with the Father. We have someone pleading our case with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave up his life. He was the propitiation, if you will. He was the means of displacing the wrath of God from us and for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
And so when you learn the art of repentance, that means when you come to the moment when life is, is, is being broken and where you, you know you've gone down the wrong path and you realize that, that things are, are out of kilter and not where they ought to be and you realize it's because of decisions you've made and, and, and things that you've done or perhaps attitudes that you've held, by the grace of God, we come to him in repentance and say, God, I, I, I've done this, I, I've, I've come to this spot, but I don't have to live here anymore. I'm in a mess, and I want out. And thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. He brings us out of the mess and sets us on our feet again. See, that's why repentance is one of the healthiest things you can do because it expresses confidence in the grace of God that he will, in fact, work in our lives to forgive us and to reshape us and to remold us. And he won't give up on us. And the act of repentance is saying, God, I take you at your word that you won't give up on me and so I'm not going to bail on this thing. Yeah, I was wrong. But God, you're bigger than that and you, you, can, you can take my life and you can, you can mold it into the image of your dear son, Jesus Christ. See, Repentance is one of the healthiest things you can do because you don't have to live a cover-up life. You don't have to pretend you're better than you are. You don't have to pretend that you've got it more together than you do. You don't have to act like, well, if God ever found out about this, I think he wouldn't like me. By the way, he already knows, okay? Repentance reopens those channels of communication and, and gets you back together again. You know, when a husband can repent... Say before God, you know, God, what I have done, what I have said, the attitudes I've had, the, the, the kind of, of attitude I've injected into my family, it's, it's not according to you, well, it's not what I need to be, but God, by your grace, it doesn't have to stay that way. And by your grace, Father, you can change me and make me an agent for your ministry and your love and your grace in my family. Can you imagine what would happen if a spirit of repentance took over our country. Instead of braggadocio and patient, condescending explanations, we had leaders willing to repent and just acknowledge their need for God. Now, that's, that's another story, but, um, but you know, as, as we are, we need to develop this, this art of forgiveness. Now, here's the thing. We don't want to do it. Now, I started out telling you that, that you know, you're fending off the repentance thing. We don't want to do it. At least we're not going to do it unless the other guy does it first. You know? I'm not going to take a step. I'm not, I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to admit. I'm not going to go before God and tell him that, that some of this is my fault unless all those other people first, after all, they're worse than I am. They designed the bad golf course. It's their fault. No, you'll never get better. You'll never get healthy till you come in repentance before God. We don't want to do that. And that's why, don't you love the book of Acts? Every page, what are we running into? The work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God enabling people to do what they would never do on their own. The Holy Spirit of God enabling people to come with confession and repentance to the Savior and to know the life-transforming power of God. And the Holy Spirit will enable you. So, I tell you, what, what would happen if this week, during the course of this week, just be on alert for when the Holy Spirit says, 
Now's the time for repentance. I don't know, it might happen tomorrow. Might happen Wednesday at 4.39 p.m. Wouldn't it be funny if it happened to you 4.39 p.m. on Wednesday? But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, you're getting into one of those pity parties or maybe you're getting in one of those, accu- uh, you know, uh, accusation fests, you know, where you're accusing other people in your mind. You wouldn't do it, you know, face-to-face. You're too polite for that. But, you know, in your heart, you, you just go into town on all the wrong everybody's doing and, uh, and this, that, and the other, and the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, you know, All you're saying might be true, but you need to repent because you have a hand in this too. And oh, the joy to be set free in the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed and changed from what we are apart from God to who he wants us to be in Jesus Christ. Look for that this week, all right? Look look for the, the, the tap of the Holy Spirit on your shoulder saying, you know, this is a good place to to repent. You don't need to worry. I'll, I'll catch you. No, I won't let anything happen to you. You just go ahead and repent because repentance is one of the healthiest things you can do in your life. All right? Let's bow together in prayer. And Father in heaven, I thank you that you're kind and gracious beyond measure and that you never grow tired of us when we turn to you never once shutting us down, never once telling us to go our own way, but, Father, always coming to us in power, grace, and love to transform who we are in life. So, Father, I pray for the folks in this room. I ask your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon each one that uh, you would open up the heart and the eyes to see your hand at work. And, Father, that you would give the strength and the confidence, the courage of faith to trust you and to change all these things. Father, I thank and praise you for being here today. Uh, Father, for letting us worship you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.